welcome to my mommy's podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Wellness. That's wellness with an E on the end. It's a new company that I co-founded to tackle the toughest personal care products and to create natural and safe products that work as well as conventional alternatives. See, this is what happened. I realized that even the most naturally minded of my friends were still using certain conventional toothpaste and shampoo because they weren't willing to sacrifice quality. They just weren't willing to have teeth that weren't white or hair that wasn't clean. There are natural options out there, certainly, and there are conventional options that work really well. But to find products that do both was almost impossible. And thus, Wellness was born. I realized that there had to be a way to create the highest quality products that also worked as well as any conventional alternative. And we tackled the toughest first, creating the first and only natural toothpaste that is fluoride and glycerin free. It's based on my DIY recipe that I have been using for a decade. It contains calcium and hydroxyapatite to uniquely support the mineral balance in the mouth. It also contains things like neem oil and green tea to support a healthy bacterial balance and oral microbiome and to fight bad breath. You can be the first to try it for you and your family and to try our innovative natural hair care shampoo and conditioner at wellness.com. So again, it's wellness with an E on the end. W-E-L-L-N-E-S-S-E dot com. This podcast is brought to you by Radiant Life Catalog. Radiant Life is a woman-owned, family-run, online health and wellness company that specializes in food-based supplements, nutrient-dense foods, eco-friendly housewares, water filtration, and purification. After spending over 20 years in the health industry, Radiant Life realized that one of the overlooked components of well-being is often access to clean, healthy, and hydrating water. Now they have a range of water filters that fix this, and they have one for every type of house and every budget from countertop units to under-the-counter units, and even the whole house filter that we have at our house. Their systems are crafted with a focus on health and wellness, so they improve the taste and the smell of water, but more importantly, they remove a wide range of potentially harmful contaminants. They also have an in-house water expert available all the time to guide you through their system selection process and answer any questions via phone or email. Their systems are also designed and built in the USA and really high quality. So you can learn more and see all the options and connect with the water expert if you need to by going to radiantlife.com forward slash wellness mama. So radiantlife.com forward slash wellness mama. And I locked in a special discount just for you guys. They almost never give discounts, but you can save $200 on a whole house or a 14 stage water system by using the code WM podcast. So again, check out radiantlife.com forward slash wellness mama and use the code WM podcast to save $200. Hello, and welcome to this special edition of the Wellness Mama podcast, where I will be focusing quite a bit on coronavirus, COVID-19, and all of the things we need to know about this. I am here with someone I really highly respect and am excited to share with you uh, on today's podcast on this topic. Dr. Eliza Song is an MD. She's a pediatrician and a pediatric functional medicine expert. She's also a mom. She runs an integrative pediatric practice and has been quoted across the media when it comes to coronavirus and COVID-19. She has a really well-researched post that goes into detail on this, and that will be linked 
in the show notes at wellnessmama.fm for all of you who want to find it along with all of the resources we talk about in this episode. And I think her perspective is really valuable both from the medical side and as a mom. She's in the data daily. She is seeing patients daily. She's keeping a very close pulse on the trends as we've now upgraded to a pandemic. And in this episode, she's going to really go through uh, basically what we need to know medically, what we need to know as parents, and how to handle both the societal and economic issues that come along with this, and if anyone in our families uh, were to catch it. And so we're going to go deep on all of those topics today, and she's going to really break down the myths related to this, what we do need to know, and why, while we, if we do need to take this seriously, we don't need to panic and be afraid. So without further ado, we are now going to join Dr. Eliza Song about all things coronavirus. Dr. Song, thank you so much for being here at such short notice to answer all of our questions. Oh, yeah, no problem. I mean, this really is sort of a last minute kind of a thing because it's such a moving target with coronavirus. And um, really, we need to keep updated every day. Exactly. And I knew that I wanted to make sure I spoke with you about this because not only are you a pediatrician, but you're also a parent and you're also a researcher and you are staying on top of all of this information. So to start broad, I know a lot of people have a lot of questions about coronavirus, specifically COVID-19. To make sure we all are on the same page, can you just define what this virus actually is? Yeah, that's a great question because you'll see a lot of different names in the media. So COVID-19 is actually the name of the respiratory illness that's caused by the novel coronavirus that was just uh, detected in Wuhan, China back in December. Fast forward, we're actually not even three months from that time. And uh, just yesterday, as of our recording, March 11, the World Health Organization declared the novel coronavirus, now a global pandemic. So what you'll see, the virus is actually circulating and now there's been a mutation. So there's two different strains that we're aware of. You may see it in the news as 2019 novel coronavirus. You might see it as 2019-NCoV, or you actually may see it as SARS-CoV-2. Now, why is that? Because years ago, uh, when the another human coronavirus that caused SARS, severe acute respiratory syndrome, that was SARS-CoV, and so this one looks very similar. So those are all the same names, 2019 novel coronavirus, 2019 NCoV, and SARS-CoV-2, and then COVID-19 is the disease caused by the new coronavirus. Got it. Okay, that's really helpful. Yeah. And so what we have to remember is coronaviruses have been circulating forever. And so we have this huge range of coronaviruses. Uh, They're named coronavirus because of the Latin word corona, which means crown. So um, if you look at these pictures, it's actually, I mean, I have to say from the pictures, it's a really pretty (laughs) virus with these crown-like spikes that are sticking out from the virus that then attach to our cells. Um, But coronavirus can can cause very, very mild symptoms like the common cold um, to more severe illnesses like what we're seeing now in COVID-19 and in SARS and in MERS, the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. So we want to really understand that, yes, this is a more virulent 
and pathogenic virus that is circulating. But I'm so glad you're doing this podcast because we really need to break through a lot of the hysteria and the panic. And I've been telling my parents in my practice, let's just be rationally prepared. Let's try to, you know, kind of weed through all all the panic and see what we as parents really need to do for our kids. Absolutely. And that's exactly why I wanted to have you on today. And I know, so you said that just as of the time of this recording, I know it was very recently upgraded to a pandemic. And I know that now there are travel bans being put in place and a lot of major events in the U.S. have been canceled because of this. But based on the numbers, how many people actually have this version of the coronavirus that we're actually seeing? Is it more people than the flu? Like, what are we looking at proportionally? You know, right now, it's not necessarily more than the flu. Um, I think what the concern is, is the mortality rate. And of course, we're, we, you can't help but pick up the paper. I don't know how many people actually pick up the paper nowadays, but you know, open up your laptop, look at the news, turn on the radio, scroll through your whatever social feed you're on, and hear of another death here and there. And that's what is frightening parents. Um, grandparents. It's frightening kids too. I mean, my, my son just literally last night came home and said, he asked me, are, are all grandparents going to die? And I thought, wow, where did you hear that? Right. And he heard it from another boy in his class. And so, you know, it is this, the mortality rate that is very concerning. And, you know, the, the way that I've been tracking it, and there are lots of flaws in the different trackers, but Johns Hopkins University has a tracker that uses five different databases. So I do think that they're probably the most accurate and they update. It's literally a live update. You can go on there and look at the, the time stamp. Um, here in the United States, um, we're seeing an increasing number. And you know there are some, some challenges with tracking and knowing the actual numbers because we in the United States have had a paucity, I would, I would say a really uh, unfortunate paucity of test kits. It's only just this week as we're speaking, so March 11, that clinicians like me, you know, out in the field, we are the ones who may be seeing coronavirus and diagnosing COVID-19, but it's only now that I just have the capability to test patients, but even that's very, very limited uh, because we are limited by the supplies that, that the labs have. So right now we know that on March 12, there's a little over 1,300 cases in the United States, uh, and there are 38, there have been 38 you know, tragic deaths here in the States, many, many more in Italy and China. Um, but you know, looking at the mortality rate, we have to take into account, given that there are very, very likely, and this is not to sound scary at all, but there are very, very likely many, many people in our communities, children and adults who have coronavirus and have no idea. And we don't know, you know, the public health department doesn't know because we haven't tested them. So when we look at that and then look at the number of deaths, we're likely looking at a much lower mortality rate than what's been reported. Uh, in the news, it's been reported to be you know, anywhere from maybe two to three and a half percent. Some experts think that it is likely well under one percent. Um, we just don't know. I mean, that is one of the concerns is that because it's novel, brand new, the world has never seen this before. And you know, December 31, when Wuhan, you know, China announced it, um, there's a lot of unknowns, but even in this short amount of time, you know, less than three months, researchers are really trying to identify what's going on, the characteristics of the coronavirus, and the clinical symptoms, and how we can better identify and maybe even treat 
coronavirus and COVID-19. One thing that I want parents to know, as far as symptoms go, children and infants seem to be you know, really very spared uh, of serious illness. So we can breathe a sigh of relief in that sense, except that, you know, what I do, what I am concerned about is that many children are likely then, you know, asymptomatic transmitters. And what we do want to be mindful of is that, you know, many of our grandparents, you know, people over 70 years of age, age seems to be the most significant factor in serious illness and also death. So, you know, we do want to do our part to stay healthy ourselves and minimize the transmission of uh, the novel coronavirus to those susceptible individuals. But to date, there have been no deaths reported in children under nine. Um, So now the symptoms of of COVID-19, they run the gamut. I mentioned that we can have asymptomatic carriers, and we know that's absolutely the case now. It wasn't quite clear in the beginning, could you be asymptomatic and carry it? But now we know, yes, people can be walking around with the novel coronavirus, be infected, but with zero symptoms, which is what we see with influenza. Um, About 50% of patients with influenza will have zero or mild symptoms. So the same thing with this novel coronavirus. Uh, The initial symptoms are often reported as fever, which might not be present if you're really young or if you're really old or immunocompromised, uh, and then upper respiratory symptoms, cold, sore throat, you know, stuffy nose, headache, you know, all the same things that we might think about with colds or flus, which is confusing right now because we are all still in the middle of influenza season. I mean, last week I saw two kids with influenza B that I tested. Just yesterday, I saw family, the entire family of four, including the 10-month-old baby and um, the almost five-year-old boy had influenza A. And I will say, you know, the the baby actually had the least, um, was the least symptomatic. I mean, he was walking around smiling and playing. (laughs) But then we worry about COVID-19 becoming more, more serious, becoming a lower respiratory infection with difficulty breathing and mild pneumonia. And then some will progress on to more severe pneumonia and something called acute respiratory distress syndrome. This is what we're hearing about, you know, patients really in the ICU, the intensive care unit with severe lung disease requiring ventilators. uh, And then ultimately their organs can start to fail and they may go into what's called sepsis, which I know a lot of people are familiar with that word sepsis, uh, may not necessarily know what that is, but sepsis is not good because many, many people uh, will die of sepsis and that's eventually what people die of. But I do want to emphasize the vast, vast majority, 80% or more of people who are infected with a novel coronavirus have very mild symptoms and possibly no symptoms. So do we want to then test everybody? I, you know, if, if I had it my way, I would test everybody because I just want to know not to stigmatize or alienate. And we have to be really careful of that too, because there, is a, there are a lot of misperceptions, especially with children uh, that I'm hearing in my kids or in the kids at their school, you know, when this first came out in China, there were questions like, well, so should we not eat Chinese food? Should we stay away from all Chinese people? We cannot, you know, really spread those misperceptions. And we really want to talk with children about what's real and what's not, but in a non-scary way. And we can go into, you know, how do we talk to kids about this? Because um, there are a lot of misperceptions, but bottom line, when I tell kids and when I tell parents, the vast majority of us, 
we're going to have really mild symptoms. It's going to feel like a cold. So we don't, we don't want to walk around panicked, but we also want to be mindful of the fact that there are people who are susceptible to having more serious illness. Um, and we want to be aware and mindful of reducing the risk of transmission. Yeah, absolutely. I think from a parent's perspective, it's a wonderful time to talk to our kids and explain how their immune system works and why hand washing is so important. It's obviously something we're all already doing, but something that we can really help get across to them why it can be helpful. Like there's so many lessons in this that we can, without being fear-based, impart to our kids. And I think you're absolutely right. I don't worry at all for anyone in my immediate family because I know that we're all in low, low risk categories. But I think all of us living in our communities locally have an obligation to at least consider the ramifications for others. Like you mentioned, the elderly population that we would encounter, or I have friends who are immunocompromised or who have been um, you know, organ donors who for different reasons would be more at risk. Um, and also the fact that I know that some of the projection models, one of the bigger concerns is if this virus takes off too quickly and too many people are infected at once, we will run into issues like hospitals being overcrowded. And so making sure that we take into that, that community like effect into account as well as we're considering not just is this going to hurt us, but how could this really drastically impact our communities and our economy going forward? So to that note, what do we need to watch for as parents? I know you said kids can especially potentially be asymptomatic um, and be able to transmit without even knowing, but what symptoms do we need to be on the lookout for? And then also, um, how can we reduce the chances of transmitting it? Yeah, so that's that's a great question. So the symptoms to look out for initially, you know, as I said, it's confusing right now because they're really going to be mild cold symptoms, um, and we're not going to know whether or not you have the common cold. You know, coronavirus causing the common cold, the start of COVID nineteen or influenza, unless we test. However, I really want to urge all of you listening: do not rush to your doctor's office. Do not rush to the ER. You know, do not rush to an urgent care clinic to get tested because what we saw in China is the rapid spread was likely due to many, many people in the waiting room, in the ERs, lining the hallways, waiting to get tested. And if they did not have coronavirus in the first place, they may be exposing themselves or if you did have coronavirus, exposing people who didn't have it. So I would call your doctor's office first, <laughs> you know, figure out, is this something that you need to be tested? Otherwise, do what we would normally do. I mean, Katie, you have such amazing resources on your blog on really how to support our children, you know, really naturally and, you know, boost their immune systems when they are sick. And we, we do the very, very same things. This is not different. You know, I still recommend to my families, we're going to up your vitamin D, we're going to up your vitamin C. You know, I use oscillococcinum, you know, we, we use different immune boosters. You know, I do use elderberry. So there are lots of different things that we can do that would be the same. So we're going to treat initially your child's cold or flu symptoms in the very same way, regardless of what is going on. But if your child starts to have difficulty breathing, now what are the signs of difficulty breathing in your child? Well, if they start to breathe maybe a little bit more quickly, you can count how many breaths they're taking in a, in a 15 second period. One breath is an inhale and an exhale, and then multiply by four. That'll give you how many times they're breathing per minute. Um, if they're breathing more than about 40 times per minute, I would want you to call your doctor. Other signs that your child might be having difficulty breathing, of course, if you hear any wheezing, whistling sounds, now sometimes that's from the nose, we can't tell, but if it's also associated with flaring of the nostrils when they're breathing, or really their, their stomach muscles or the rib cage pumping in and out, 
using extra muscles to help them breathe, or if they're grunting every time they exhale, those are signs that they're, they're increasing their quote work of breathing, that they're using a little bit more energy to breathe. So those are times when I would want you to call your doctor. And again, I would, I would urge you to call your doctor first before you go to urgent care, just to assess what you should be doing. Now, you know, that being said, you know, the first, the, the best way to really uh, prevent coronavirus transmission and also reduce the likelihood of our kids and ourselves uh, getting infected, the number one is washing hands. And I know that you're seeing that in the news. It's so common sense, but really and truly, this is so important. There was one study, the, there were statisticians that looked at airports and, you know, really looked at what could the impact be of properly washing our hands. And I'll go into what properly means, but uh, the first statistic to know is that, you know, when people have kind of watched other people in the bathroom after they've gone to the bathroom and, you know, leave the, leave the restroom, about a third, right? One in three people don't wash their hands after going to the bathroom. And so that's something that is really starting. And I would bet that many more kids don't wash their hands after going to the bathroom. So just, you know, talk with your kids about that. And then they looked at, you know, were they doing it the right way? And when they looked at that, they saw that only about 50% of those people who actually did wash their hands were doing it the right way. And I can tell you, when I've washed my son, right, what does he do? Run his hands quickly under the water. Maybe just put a tiny little bit of soap on and, you know, wet his hands and that's it, right? That's not proper hand washing. So how do we do it the right way? And, and I did, I wrote, wrote a blog on how to teach your kids how to wash your hands the right way, because this is really, really important. We want to wash it, wash our hands, I would say at least 30 seconds, because some of the studies looking at uh, influenza virus, I found that 30 seconds is really what we need to do. Not singing your ABCs one time through, right? Most people can sing their ABCs in about 30 seconds. So we want to wet our hands, lather with soap, and then what's really, really important, get not just your palms, like most people do, backs of the hands in between our fingers and under our nails. And you can get under your nails by opening up your palm and rubbing your nails on the inside of your palm and doing that for 30 seconds. And then we want to rinse and dry. And then of course we want to, when we turn off the faucet, if we're in a public restroom, not so much in our own home, but in a public restroom, you want to turn off that faucet either with the paper towel you use or with your elbow or something else, because we don't want to recontaminate our clean hands. Um, but why is this important? They found that if people could wash their hands the right way, if just 60% of air travelers wash their hands in the right way and maintain clean hands, it could slow down the spread of coronavirus infections by almost 70%. That's huge. And really, you know, one of the things that I looked at, it wasn't clear in the beginning uh, of the, what was then the epidemic, now the pandemic, was could this novel coronavirus live on surfaces like you know, handrails, um, you know, like your cell phone, laptops, countertops. It wasn't sure. But now we know, yes, it can live on surfaces. And when we look at other similar coronaviruses, like the SARS you know, coronavirus, um, the MERS coronavirus, studies have found that, you know, we know that the coronavirus can live on surfaces for at least three hours, but, uh, but maybe even up to nine days. Now, that is not to panic you, but to let you know, that if you're out and about and you're touching anything, and of course we are touching things all the time, you want to make sure that you wash your hands effectively before you eat, before you touch your face 
at all. Now, when we, you know, that's another issue too. I was just actually um, spoke with a reporter to uh, who wanted to get my tips as a pediatrician on how do we keep our kids' hands away from our faces, right? I know, you know, Bodhi, and I, not that Kenzie is, is uh, you know, perfect in all of this, but, you know, Bodhi is younger uh, and he just, he, I mean, he's just a little grosser, right? I mean, he kind of touches things all the time, puts his hands in his mouth. I mean, he's just, you know, everywhere. And so really, you know, how do I, how do we keep our kids' hands away from their eyes, their nose, and their mouth, because we know that, um, you know, adults, when they've looked at adults, we touch our faces at least on average 23 times an hour. That's more than once every three seconds. And for kids, it's likely more than that. And, you know, when we do touch our face, it's usually around our mucous membranes, eyes, nose, and mouth, exactly where we can uh, have coronavirus enter. So we don't want our kids to panic. Right. We don't want them. We don't want to constantly be nagging them. Stop touching our face. Don't do that. You know, what we want to really do first is helping kids be aware of when they're touching their face, because if we're not aware and paying attention, we can't stop that habit. So first have them just notice, you know, while you're sitting at the dinner table, while you're sitting, reading a book, notice how often they're touching their face. And then when we, you know, ask when we want them to stop doing that. <laughs> Instead of saying, stop touching your face, we want to frame it in a little more positive way. We want to frame it in uh, the way that we're telling them what to do, right? What positive action to take instead of what not to do. So keep your hands down, keep, uh, keep your hands in front of you, you know, put your hands on the table, whatever it is but, that we want them to do. But, you know, bottom line, we want them to stop touching their face. But if we constantly nag and yell at them, they're going to tune that out eventually. So we want to frame it in that more positive way, right? And then, you know, with washing hands, I mean, washing hands with soap and water is the number one way to keep our hands effectively clean if we're doing it the right way, but we're out a lot. Now, many of us are hunkering down. Um, some schools have closed, so your kids are going to be at home more and maybe not out in public places. And so you have your bathroom to wash your hands with soap and water, but many times we don't have that. And so, you know, hand sanitizers are the next best thing. But when, we've, when the studies have looked at what actually can kill or inactivate um, coronaviruses, human coronaviruses on surfaces, uh, what they found to be the most effective, a few things, but uh, one of the things that was found to be most effective is a, an alcohol solution with at least 60% alcohol. They've also found that a, like a 0.5% hydrogen peroxide or a 0.1% bleach solution can be effective, but we're not going to hydrogen peroxide and bleach may be fine on surfaces, but that's not what we're going to sanitize our hands with. So that's where you'll see the recommendations online, at least a 60% alcohol-based hand sanitizer. Now, if you've gone to the store <laughs> or if you've gone on Amazon, I mean, there's no Purell to be found um, unless, you, uh, well, that's not true. There may be, but it might be a hundred dollars for a tiny little bottle, right? <laughs> and so you know, there are lots of ways that we can make our own hand sanitizers. And I know that you've written about that as well, but we want to make sure it's at least a 60% alcohol base. Um, with that, you know, I just literally yesterday put up a blog post on how do we do that? Because it does take some math, some calculations, and you might have different percentages of isopropyl rubbing alcohol. So 
if you have a 99% rubbing alcohol, you're basically going to do two parts alcohol or one part aloe to one part aloe vera gel. Um, if you're allergic to aloe vera gel, and I just had a mom, you know, comment that she just can't find any aloe vera gel, you can use glycerin. That's a fine substitute. More commonly, you'll see 70% rubbing alcohol or isopropyl alcohol. So with that, you need to use more alcohol to aloe vera gel to make it a 60% solution. So nine parts alcohol to one part aloe vera gel. Um, and so, you know, I have, I have the different, three different options. Uh, with the uh, rubbing alcohol, depending on what percentage you have, whether you have 99%, 91%, or 70%, um, in the in an article that I literally just put up yesterday, and you know, it, parents are really appreciating that practical breakdown, right? Because we, if we're going to go through the effort of have, making our own hand sanitizer, we want it to be effective. That makes so much sense. And I love that you, um, you're right, I do have a post and I know you do as well. I'll link to both about the hand sanitizers and a lot of the things you just mentioned. And I love that you also mentioned vitamin D because this is something I always am cognizant of this time of year anyway, because I know I've read data that having optimal vitamin D levels can reduce the risk of a lot of respiratory issues and lessen the severity of lots of types of illnesses. So even if we're not worried about coronavirus, this is still cold and flu season. There's still a lot going around. And I know um, you can speak to this better than I can, but since it is a fat-soluble vitamin, it's one you don't want to just overdose on. So I know I test our whole family this time of year and make sure our levels are within range, but I feel like that is one evidence-backed thing that I think is important to be aware of and to take this time of year. Do you have any additional advice on the vitamin D front? Absolutely. So um, one thing that I just want to make sure people know is that as of now, we have no idea what an effective treatment against COVID-19 will be, whether it's pharmaceutical or natural. We just don't know. I mean, this is a brand new virus. And so I, I do want people to... Um, you know, exercise caution and use their common sense when uh, reading, you know, any number of posts online that may claim uh, that certain natural supplements may treat and cure COVID-19. Now, that being said, we know that there are a lot of things that can theoretically help reduce our likelihood of getting coronavirus, you know, the new coronavirus in the first place and significantly reducing our symptoms. Um, and we have evidence for that, which is, you know, for me as a pediatrician, I really want to make sure that I'm recommending things that have solid evidence um, of, of potential good and also are not going to harm. So vitamin D is as you said, I mean, that is one of the supplements that I am the most religious about uh, in terms of giving my family and, uh, and myself uh, to keep us healthy throughout the wintertime because there are so many other germs circulating besides just this. Um, and you're, you know, you're in Florida, but even in Florida, you know, where the sun is shining and kids are outdoors a lot more, it, many, many kids, in fact, the vast majority are still deficient or insufficient in vitamin D. So I do recommend testing if you have that option because, you know, as Katie mentioned, vitamin D is fat soluble. It does get stored up in your fat cells. It potentially can get to, you know, quote, toxic levels. Although, you know, I have never, ever seen that even in kids who are taking quite high doses. Um, but what, why vitamin D? Well, you know, when we look at, at, uh, COVID-19. Uh, and, you know, I, I had mentioned that one of the complications uh, that we worry about, although not common, but, you know, can be fatal is sepsis. And we know that vitamin D actually can help 
uh, reduce your likelihood of developing sepsis if you get any infection. Uh, it's been called a quote pro survival molecule, and it has it. It actually um, produces helps our body produce a protein called cathelicidin that has amazing antiviral and antibacterial properties. So maintaining our vitamin D levels at really optimal healthy levels is really key to keeping our immune system strong, keeping our immune system strong um, with the right foods and you know, with the right supplements is I do believe going to be the key to keeping us healthy and keeping our, our own coronavirus illnesses as mild as possible. So, you know, in general, once once our levels are, you know, quote, optimal, um, the maintenance dose recommended by the vitamin D council of vitamin D3 supplementation is 1000 IUs per 25 pounds of body weight up to, you know, 100 pounds. And then, and then they really, you know, have you recommend limiting it to 5,000 IUs daily unless you can monitor it with your physician. So, I mean, my kids, they're getting, you know, three and 4,000 IUs of vitamin D3 per day. Um, they're eight and 10 years of age, and, and that's the appropriate dose according to their weight. And I know they have good levels because I've checked them. Um, you know, I take 5,000 a day, but if I'm starting to feel a little under the weather, I'll take a little bit more. So there's vitamin D, and then I had also mentioned vitamin C. Now, um, vitamin C, what they found in studies is that IV vitamin C, when given in the intensive care unit to patients with sepsis, you know, full organ failure, multi-system organ failure, uh, can significantly, absolutely reduce the death rate compared to those patients who didn't receive vitamin C. So, you know, I'm not going to say that vitamin C will cure you of coronavirus if you do contract it, but certainly as a powerful antioxidant, um, you know, it, it is a very important part, I think, of prevention. And if we start to feel sick, you know, of really, you know, helping support our immune systems to um, fight and ward off any infections. Um, you know, really, when we're sick with any infection, uh, our body creates inflammation, of course, and produces a lot of free radicals. It's these free radicals that make us feel sick. Uh, when we have more free radicals, we feel more sick. So that's why, you know, when, when we see people with a range of symptoms, um, it is, I do believe, those, those people who have a higher level of antioxidant reserve that don't feel as sick and don't get as sick and, and you know, don't get as many complications. Because those free radicals, once they've done their job, you know, we want them around to fight the infection, but once they've done their job, we want to bring those free radicals down, get rid of them, uh, and mop them up with antioxidants. And antioxidants are going to be, you know, vitamin C, vitamin A, vitamin E. Think all the colorful fruits and vegetables, which is why we have to go back to the foundations of how do we keep our immune system healthy? Um, and really looking, really looking at food as medicine, getting rid of the sugar because sugar absolutely suppresses our immune system's ability to fight off infection. So this is not the time to be, you know, if your children are, you know, anxious or fearful, we don't want to um, give them sweets or, you know, treats that then help them maybe feel better temporarily because a lot of us may think about doing that. Oh, I know, you know, reach for the ice cream when we're nervous, <laughs> uh, but we don't want to do that right now. We want to really, you know, um, uh, help our kids with their anxieties in, in another way, um, not using food and really using the power of food to keep our immune system strong. 
100% in agreement with you on that. And to echo what you said, I think it's important to realize this is a virus. So it's not something that we have, like you said, even conventional treatments or cures for. But with any illness, we always have the option to support our immune system, to support our overall health, to get good sleep, to spend time outside, to take vitamin D. The things we do know have a benefit just for overall health and for supporting the immune system. And that's something positive we can focus on versus falling into the fear side, which is also bad for your immune system to begin with. This podcast is brought to you by Wellness. That's Wellness with an E on the end. It's a new company that I co-founded to tackle the toughest personal care products and to create natural and safe products that work as well as conventional alternatives. See, this is what happened. I realized that even the most naturally minded of my friends were still using certain conventional toothpaste and shampoo because they weren't willing to sacrifice quality. They just weren't willing to have teeth that weren't white or hair that wasn't clean. There are natural options out there, certainly, and there are conventional options that work really well. But to find products that do both was almost impossible. And thus, Wellness was born. I realized that there had to be a way to create the highest quality products that also worked as well as any conventional alternative. And we tackled the toughest first, creating the first and only natural toothpaste that is fluoride and glycerin free. It's based on my DIY recipe that I have been using for a decade. It contains calcium and hydroxyapatite to uniquely support the mineral balance in the mouth. It also contains things like neem oil and green tea to support a healthy bacterial balance and oral microbiome and to fight bad breath. You can be the first to try it for you and your family and to try our innovative natural hair care shampoo and conditioner at wellness.com. So again, it's wellness with an E on the end, W-E-L-L-N-E-S-S-E.com. This podcast is brought to you by Radiant Life Catalog. Radiant Life is a woman-owned, family-run, online health and wellness company that specializes in food-based supplements, nutrient-dense foods, eco-friendly housewares, water filtration, and purification. After spending over 20 years in the health industry, Radiant Life realized that one of the overlooked components of well-being is often access to clean, healthy, and hydrating water. Now they have a range of water filters that fix this and they have one for every type of house and every budget from countertop units to under the counter units and even the whole house filter that we have at our house. Their systems are crafted with a focus on health and wellness. So they improve the taste and the smell of water, but more importantly, they remove a wide range of potentially harmful contaminants. They also have an in-house water expert available all the time to guide you through their system selection process and answer any questions via phone or email. Their systems are also designed and built in the USA and really high quality. So you can learn more and see all the options and connect with the water expert if you need to by going to radiantlife.com forward slash wellness mama. So radiantlife.com forward slash wellness mama. And I locked in a special discount just for you guys. They almost never give discounts, but you can save $200 on a whole house or a 14 stage water system by using the code WM podcast. So again, check out radiantlife.com forward slash wellness mama and use the code WM podcast to save $200. Um, I know one question that comes up around this and I've been getting online as well is to do with explaining what a cytokine storm is and ways that we can help our body to have, again, have a strong immune system and to be able to handle if that was an issue because, um, 
I know that's something that apparently, from what I understand, at least a lot of these mortalities are related to sepsis, not to the actual virus itself. And the cytokine storm comes into play here. But I know, can you explain this a little bit better? Absolutely. So you're right on in that, you know, typically with, let's say with, you know, even with influenza, right, but also with, um, with um, the coronavirus, with SARS or the current coronavirus, it's our own body's reaction, our own immune system's reaction that, you know, makes us symptomatic. And oftentimes the, the actual infection right? The coronavirus may be completely eradicated. It's not there anymore, but the inflammatory cytokines that have, that your immune system have produced then create this cascade of effects that then can create what a lot of people are now talking about this quote cytokine storm. Now, this is not a new, um, new concept. In fact, even last year, every time influenza season comes around, um, there's questions about the cytokine storm. Then the next question is, well, should I use elderberry? Because can elderberry cause a a cytokine storm? And there's so much information out there. And I've seen, you know, um, both sides saying absolutely no elderberry, you know, if you're (laughs) during the flu season and if you're sick uh, to elderberry is completely fine. And I think it's somewhere in the middle. Um, remember with it with sepsis, the cytokine storm, it really, if we can have enough antioxidants on board to mop up those free radicals and those inflammatory cytokines, um, that's going to be the most protective thing. So when we look at elderberry in particular, and you know, I this post that I actually uh, did on on elderberry, um, I, I called it elderberry and the cytokine storm. Do you need to worry? I mean, it's still, you know, years later, one of my most popular posts and I'm being asked about it. So um, I do want to um, write a post with more evidence, but what I want people to understand is, and parents to understand, is that elderberry does have immunostimulatory effects, but in beneficial ways, right? So yes, it can actually create uh, increased levels of inflammatory cytokines. And we want to really understand that inflammation is not a bad thing, right? Just like when you get a cut and then maybe there's a little pus and a little redness and then it heals, that's inflammation, right? When you get an illness and your body mounts a fever, that's inflammation. But those are beneficial because they're helping us fight whatever's going on. So that's inflammatory cytokines. And then we have anti-inflammatory cytokines that are also produced by elderberry. So when we have inflammation that's normal and healthy, we also need you know, anti-inflammatory cytokines to come and say, well, you've done your job. Let's regulate the immune system and go back down to baseline, go back down to you know, our, our usual state of good health. And hopefully we are in a usual state of good health. Now, that's where I think it can be sort of a double-edged sword. I think that elderberry can be beneficial, um, but I also think you can have too much of a good thing. So I, I am not recommending that people take elderberry on a daily basis right now, but I am you know, still um, uh, using elderberry for my own patients when they come in with flu-like symptoms because I know how beneficial it can be to help fight that infection initially and then reduce the inflammatory response as they're healing. You know, that is where, you know, we want to just understand that, you know, inflammatory cytokines, not a bad thing. Cytokine storm, yes, a bad thing. Uh, But elderberry is not necessarily the evil that some are making it out to be. 
Good to know. Yeah, thank you for clearing that up. And I know people still um, have a lot of concerns, especially in the last 24 hours, even there have been travel bans that are announced. Um, what's your take, both as a doctor and as a parent, on if we should be avoiding travel at this point? And if people are going to travel, do things like, for instance, wearing a face mask, will that actually help? Because I've seen conflicting reports on if that's even effective. <sighs> that's such a good question. I mean, that is a million dollar question, right? Because as we head to, um, I mean, some kids have spring break next week. My school, you know, our kids have spring break middle of April. So we're now in this next month of, you know, a lot of travel plans. <laughs> and so, um, you know, and a lot of these travel plans will include flying. Now, the U.S. just announced that there is a travel ban to and from Europe. So, you know, for folks who have had, you know, made travel plans to go to Europe over spring break, that's that's that decision has been made for them. Um, but domestic travel, you know, my families who have planned to go to Disneyland next week or families, my sister uh, in Colorado had plans to fly with her, her husband and her two, you know, almost three-year-old twin girls to Florida to see my mom and my stepdad, you know, both of whom are in their 70s. And my mother, you know, just, just, you know, in November was diagnosed with esophageal cancer and went through her chemo and had surgery and she's recovering. So what do we do there? Right. And so we want to think, um, who are we going to visit? Um, what are our risks for contracting coronavirus? Um, how do we minimize those risks? Uh, and so, um, you know, I, I will say if you are traveling to see um, potentially vulnerable people like maybe your elderly parents, um, you know, grandparents in this case, um, I, I would reconsider right now because we are sort of on the cusp. We're sort of in this, um, I don't want to call it a honeymoon period because we, we are seeing um, people getting sick and of course people dying in the States. Um, but we're in this window where the projections are that in the next couple of weeks, we are going to see many, many more numbers, you know, rapid doubling. Uh, so we're not there yet. So on the one hand, perhaps this is a good time to travel. On the other hand, um, we don't want to be one of those vectors for increasing the spread. So if you do decide to travel, there are things that you can do to minimize your exposures. Now with masks, um, you know, the surgical masks that you see, they have all the gaps on the side. Um, those are not going to do anything to prevent you from getting coronavirus infections. Those, however, will prevent others from getting infections from you if you are sneezing or coughing. So, um, you know, I, if you do or your child does have any upper respiratory symptoms, I would not fly because you are then exposing all the other people on the plane. But if you are healthy and you do choose to fly, um, which I do know many families who are, uh, wearing what's called an N95 mask uh, that filters out, you know, at least 95% of the particulate matter um, may be effective. Um, my husband's actually, he's going to Las Vegas for a hockey tournament. He's leaving today. We did, we had a discussion, decided, you know, he would go, but, um, you know, he will likely be wearing a mask on the plane just to prevent himself from getting any unwanted exposures. The mask does have to be really well fitted. There cannot be gaps. And unfortunately, there are no N95 masks that are going to fit a child's face well enough to protect against coronavirus or even influenza virus infection. So if you're traveling with kids, that's really probably not 
going to be an effective option. Um, the other concern too, just from a public health standpoint is we really do need to, I mean, there's been a run on masks. You're not gonna be able to find N95 masks if you don't have them already. I happen to have them because of the fires here, the tragic fires in California. So we've had them, you know, for the past couple of years, actually, the past three years when we've had these you know, horrible forest fires in Northern California and the air quality has been so, you know, devastatingly horrible. Um, but, you know, we do want to be mindful of the fact that, you know, we are at risk for running out of protective gear and supplies for, um, you know, really the, the medical professionals, the doctors and the nurses who are in the ERs who and the ICUs who will be ca uh, caring for sick patients. So what would I do if I did choose to fly? Um, you know, just make sure, remember the surfaces, right? All the surfaces that your kids could touch. I do wipe them down now. I used to think, oh, I'm not going to wipe down. You know, that's okay. I'm not going to, you know, be worried about that. But, you know, the screen in front of you, the, the, um, uh, the handle, the, your armrest, the seat button that reclines the chair, the window shade, um, the belt, the seatbelt buckle, I wipe down all of that. And again, in this case right now, uh, I would use a uh, hand wipes that have um, at least 60% alcohol in them. Uh, when you're wiping down surfaces like that, you could use a ble you know, bleach wipe as well. Uh, and then of course, when you're flying, just make sure that you've gotten enough sleep the night before that you are not up packing at all hours of the night because sleep deprivation does suppress our immune system's ability to fight off infections. Make sure that you're not, you know, snacking at the airport on, you know, muffins or chocolate or, you know, candy or a lot of the things that we often, um, I know your audience doesn't, but, you know, that many parents do quote, treat their kids with because they're being so good on the plane. Um, you know, staying hydrated, all those good things to really keep our immune system strong. As of now, um, I'm not necessarily recommending that people don't travel, but I, that will likely change in the coming weeks. So um, I think we just have to pay attention to what's going on and be as... Um, as safe as possible. Um, my sister was on the fence about flying. She was supposed to fly uh, in two days um, as we speak and, uh, and just and did decide uh, last night not to go because of the, not because of her concern with uh, her children getting sick because as I mentioned, children are relatively spared. They seem to have mild to no symptoms, but really out of concern for possibly bringing anything to my parents who are elderly and my mom, especially who has an increased risk because of her recent uh, chemotherapy and surgery. It makes sense. And I love that you are bringing such a calm and level-headed perspective to this and giving people practical tips that they can do to keep their family safe, but also to reduce the fear and calm the panic, which I think is even potentially more of a pandemic at this yes. point than the actual virus itself. I know you've also written some great articles on remedies if you or your child do get sick and just things you can do again to support the body through that. Um, and you also have a course. I will make sure that I link to both of those in the show notes at wellnessmama.fm. And of course, they are also on your blog at healthykidshappykids.com. Um, and I also know that you are an active practicing doctor who needs to see patients in eight minutes. I want to respect your time. <laughs> but any um, just parting advice or words of wisdom to parents who are just worried about navigating this with their families? Absolutely. Um, you know, like you said, stress, this, you know, stress may be more of a pandemic than, than anything else. And um, I just want to emphasize that 
that stress, how we're feeling, you know, our own anxieties, um, which then can fuel our children's anxieties. Um, that may actually be one of the most inflammatory things, the most immunosuppressing factors <laughs> that we are encountering. So, you know, I, I want to really um, help parents to be, you know, what I've told my my patients: just let's be rationally prepared. Um, let's be, um, you know, rationally cautious, but not panicked. Um, we really want to try to focus every day on self-care for ourselves so that we can then be present and calm and, you know, help our kids navigate this time. Um, I just yesterday um, recorded an interview with, uh, with one of my favorite child psychologists. Um, I would say favorite child psychologists, except my sister is one, so I can't, <laughs> I can't say favorite, but um, Dawn Huebner, H-U-E-B-N-E-R. She is incredible. She is a child psychologist that teaches kids cognitive behavioral techniques through her self-help books just for kids or the what to do series, what to do when you worry too much, um, what to do, you know, when, when your temper flares, what to do when your brain gets stuck. She's got a whole series, but her latest book, Something Bad Happened, that's the title of it, Something Bad Happened, that came out last fall. And she wasn't writing it specifically for coronavirus, obviously, because we didn't know about coronavirus then. Um, But it's really how to help our kids navigate really bad news, tragic events. And, you know, we are we are already seeing tragic events in the news. I'm hoping that people don't have their radio on just all the time or the TV on. Um, or casually flipping through their, you know, their news feeds uh, while their children are watching over their shoulders because it's too much um, for for brains, even middle school and high school brains, to really, you know, uh, comprehend fully without our help. So we recorded an interview on you really, you know, how to help, how to talk with kids about coronavirus that I'll be posting up you know, very, very soon as so. And by the time you post the podcast, I I will get that link to you because I want parents to know that they do have tools to help themselves keep calm and help their kids keep calm. And I think that's going to be one of the most powerful ways that we as families and as communities can get through the coronavirus uh, pandemic together. I love it. And I will make sure that all of those links are in the show notes. You guys check it out. It will be the podcast at wellnessmama.fm is where you can find it. And I will also, Dr. Song, link to your social media, especially your Instagram. You've been posting some resources there and some updates so people can follow along with you. And uh, we'll ride this thing out together, like you said. And I think um, I think parents are the front line of defense. And I'm so grateful that you are sharing all of this practical common sense information without the fear. And I think that's going to really help a lot of families. So thank you so much. Oh, thanks for doing this, Katie. It's, it's so important to get the word out and you you can do that, you know, so well. Uh, and, and really, yeah. I appreciate your time today. And thanks as always to all of you for listening and sharing your most valuable asset, your time with both of us today. We're so grateful that you did. And we both hope that you stay healthy and well and happy and enjoy the time with your families through this whole time period. So grateful to Dr. Song for sharing all of that information uh, and for her very, very balanced approach on this. I wanted to follow up with a few things and just some practical measures that I'm personally taking uh, based on a lot of questions I've gotten from you guys. And to start, I also just really want to reiterate what Dr. Song said in the interview, which is that while it makes absolute sense to take a rational preparedness approach to this, uh, we also do need to stay calm and maintain some sort of balance as well. 
I know that things like this can seem extremely scary, but especially as parents, we have the ability to help maintain the calm and to pass on a calm attitude to our children and also to take the proper preventative steps without overreacting or being overly afraid. And I'm not at all trying to diminish the potential of what this can be or to minimize the fact that people have died from this and people will continue to die from this. But I just want to reiterate, like we talked about with Dr. Song, that fear and stress do not help the immune system and nothing is to be gained from that. And so to whatever degree possible, I think, like she said, just once again, to reiterate, we need to be rationally prepared to be ready for what may and looks likely will happen at this point, but at the same time to maintain calm and composure and community and support each other in local areas um, in whatever ways that we can. So that's my first step to this, my own personal approach right now is stay calm, take a deep breath, don't stress out. That said, uh, to reiterate a lot of the stuff she said, I'm just going through my personal checklist of things that, that I am implementing in my home with my kids, uh, extra stuff I'm taking right now just to, as we talked about, boost the immune system, increase the body's own defenses. Like she reiterated again and again, there is no right now known cure for this, not in conventional medicine, not in alternative medicine, but there are some things that may be helpful in just supporting the body in either hopefully avoiding getting sick or in shortening the duration if we do get sick. All of the experts agree that hand washing is extremely important. And she talks about, she talked about this when I spoke with her a few minutes ago, and you'll see this advice in any official document and CDC papers, everything coming out. Experts agree that hand washing the right way is one of the best steps that we can take to stop the spread of this, or at least to lengthen the curve, which will give our healthcare system the best shot at handling the potential upflux of people who are going to need to visit the hospital. So uh, I will put links in the show notes to everything I talk about in this part of the podcast. But I have stocked up on big staples like liquid Castile soap, which I use to make big batches of homemade foaming hand soap, and which can also be used on its own as a hand soap. And I've been adding in a few drops of different types of antibacterial essential oils and antiviral essential oils into the hand soap. So current favorite for me is Germ Destroyer or Germ Fighter from Plant Therapy. I'll put those links and a discount code in the show notes if they are still even available and not sold out online. And to echo her advice, this requires proper hand washing. She quoted the statistics of how big of a difference this can make if we were all washing our hands the right way. But that is important to It needs to be at least 30 seconds, ideally up to a minute with warm water and soap. And that needs to happen, especially anytime we've visited public places or touched surfaces where the virus can live. I'm also normally not a huge fan of hand sanitizer, but it's something I am making and keeping on hand right now. If you have been to any stores, you know that it's pretty much sold out online and in essentially all stores. So I have been making big batches of my homemade hand sanitizer recipe to use whenever we're out of the house uh, or if we've been in public areas where we can't wash hands as easily or there's more potential for the virus to spread. Um, There's multiple recipes in that post. So a word of advice, she explained that for to meet CDC standards, hand sanitizer needs to be at least 60% alcohol. And if you know what percentage your alcohol is, this is a simple math equation. Most rubbing alcohol is 70% or above, 
and some of them are as high as 99%. So you need to make sure whatever alcohol that you use, not just the percentage of that alcohol mixture, but the percentage of actual alcohol is above 60% if you're trying to meet the CDC standards. And then I dilute that with either aloe vera, which is also largely sold out online, or glycerin, and then add essential oils just for an extra layer of defense there and also for scent. Something else I always do this time of year, and I'm just also making sure we do right now, is nasal irrigation, especially if we are traveling or have been in public places. This is something, like I said, it's not specific to coronavirus or COVID-19. This is something I do during cold and flu season anyway, because there are lots of things going around besides just these. But I use uh, several different types. There's one from Genexa, Genexa saline, both an adult version and then infant and children's versions as well. And then I've also used other different methods of nasal irrigation at home, similar to a neti pot, but with pre-mixed saline. And all of those will be linked in the show notes as well. In our home, because even though there are viruses going around, my house is still the place where all the neighborhood kids hang out. And I always wanted it to be that. I've not discouraged that even with uh, all of these things going around, but I am taking a few extra precautionary steps. So I've pretty much been diffusing different essential oils on repeat 24-7. Right now I'm using Germ Destroyer KidSafe essential oil and Germ Fighter from Plant Therapy, also Immune Aid and Defender. And I have their oils like Respirade and Immune Boom on hand in case uh, any of us do get sick. But I am just diffusing those pretty much all the time in our home. I'm also running air filters, which I normally have in the home as well, but I've ordered a few more. So I have Air Doctor air filters, which you guys might have heard of from me before, and also Air Oasis. And I have discounts for both of those, which will be in the show notes at wellnessmama.fm. There's some evidence that certain types of air filters can filter particulate sizes small enough to get viruses in the air. So since there is an, uh, an airborne nature to this, it's just a cautionary step that I'm taking. And then personally and with my kids, there's a few additional supplements that I've added into our routine or increased our dosage on. I just stocked up on uh, Genexa remedies. So again, there's no treatment or cure for this that we know of, but there are things that might help um, shorten the duration or at least improve symptoms if anybody does get sick. Um, So you can find links in the show notes to all the Genexa remedies, but they have saline ones that I already mentioned, and they also have cold crush and flu fix both designed to help with comfort and duration during those types of events. So those are in the show notes as well. As Dr. Song mentioned, two other big ones that seem to come into play with any type of respiratory illness are vitamin D and vitamin C. And I've linked to my post on both of these in the show notes. I do think it's important to test for vitamin D levels, especially this time of year when we aren't in the sun as much. And so that's something I do for our whole family and that we supplement with regularly we use drops of vitamin D, high dose vitamin D in the mouth in the doses based on body weight and testing to keep those in range as well. And I'll put some of my other uh, tips and suggestions in the show notes as well, but I just wanted to give a look at what I'm personally doing and what I'm not doing. I'm not, we're not wearing face masks. We're not uh, right now quarantining or staying inside. We are on we are limiting any unnecessary travel or big gatherings of a lot of people. Um, but just to reiterate what she said, I am not afraid at all from an illness perspective for our family because none of us are in high-risk populations. But that said, anytime we are dealing with a relatively 
rapidly spreading now pandemic. I do think it's important for us all to just be aware and rationally prepared, again, to use that word, so that we aren't passing this on without even being symptomatic and we aren't putting people that we love at risk. But that needs to be balanced with keeping calm and not letting the fear and the overwhelm take over and using this as an opportunity to spend more time together in community, in small groups, in family, and to talk to our kids about important things we would want to teach them anyway, uh, like what happens in types of events like this, like preventative measures that we can take, like what our immune system is and how it works and how we can support our body and how the body is, works as an organism as a whole and not just in individual parts. And so I think there's a lot of many, like very many valuable lessons in this. I have no doubt that communities like this one, the Amazing Wellness Mama community, will only come together more and strengthen in times like this. And I'm just so grateful to all of you for being the leaders of this in your own families, communities, and homes, and for caring, for listening, and for sharing. So thank you again for your time today. I hope that this was helpful to you and your family. I hope that you stay healthy and happy, and I hope that you will join me again on the next episode of the Wellness Mama podcast. If you're enjoying these interviews, would you please take two minutes to leave a rating or review on iTunes for me? Doing this helps more people to find the podcast, which means even more moms and families can benefit from the information. I really appreciate your time and thanks as always for listening.